Okay, well, today we're in Genesis chapter 3, and this is one of the key passages of our Bible. I mean, I think when I looked at it, I thought, we could, we could do this over, we could do a good four weeks on this chapter. So um, today is kind of what I like to call speed dash through chapter 3. Um, there are loads of other questions that I'm not even going to touch on, um, and it's just because we sent me... We haven't got time. We, we could do hours and hours on this. But we are fortunate enough that we have big questions. So don't just park them, but rather write them on a piece of paper, put them in the box, and it'd be great to have those, have a bit more time at big questions to go through them. Okay, now, the question coming up next Sunday is about if God is good, then why is there so much suffering? And that kind of touches on this passage today. This is what it's all about, isn't it? If God is good, why is it so messed up? Why are people so evil? Why does creation seem to be so cruel at times to um, its inhabitants? Why does the evidence sometimes seem to point to something different? Society's thinkers, um, they offer some different solutions, lots in fact, I'm just going to pick up two today. We've got the thinkers who think that humans are basically good people, in their nature is generally good. It's uh, why they're not is maybe bad parenting, to put it quite simply, or unjust systems, or societal pressures on them. If we could just get this right, if we could just get all the kind of building blocks in place, then humans would be good. They would care for each other, they would be kind, they would be gentle. And people have hoped for this, haven't they, over the years? We hear of humanists saying people are getting better. And history, though, shows us something completely different. It shows us that whatever environment we put humans in, whatever uh, political system they find themselves in or whatever people have tried to do to make this perfect environment, that people still have an immense capacity for evil. And then we've got the other side, the response, who say, well, of course people are evil. You know, they're not really evil. You know, there's no such thing as evil or good. That's just natural. That's what it is to be human. It's genetic. You know, it's survival of the fittest. The weak should be removed from the genetic pool. And we've seen people adopt this philosophy, haven't we? In history, we've seen people annihilate whole, seek to annihilate, anyway, whole groups of people that they consider to be inferior in the genetic code. And out of these false assumptions, we've had people try to create utopias, haven't we? They've withdrawn into a kind of commune state where um, they've decided what the rules would be, what would make this a perfect place. It's out there that's evil. And yet we've seen things like Waco and Jim Jones, where this has shown that put in that situation, we see more evil there than we did outside of this. But when we look at these people who are saying, well, 
we're getting better, or, oh, it's natural and normal, there doesn't seem to be much hope. What's the answer? If this is the way we are, if we just are, you know, survival of the fittest, what hope is there? What can we change? What can we do to change to make it better? What can we do in that situation? The Bible gives us an an alternative reason for evil. It gives us an alternative explanation of why things are not the way they should be. So we're going to have a little read now. um, And we're going to read two bits. We're going to read chapter 3. But we're also just going to nip back and uh, read a little bit of chapter 2, 15 and 17 as well. So we'll start there. So verse 15 of chapter 2 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord, that'll do. And then down at chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sounds of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. But the Lord God said to the serpent, Serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and crush your offspring and hers. Sorry, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. You, um, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. Okay. Well, that took quite a while just to read it. (laughs) So, Adam and Eve, what do they have to do with us? Okay, we often hear people, well, it's nothing to do with me. That happened millions of years ago, or thousands, or whatever you believe. It's nothing to do with me at all. Um, I'm different. How can I be punished for what they do? What's the relationship between us and Adam and Eve? Well, we're going to look today at how they lost their oneness with God and how we redo it. It's like we're replaying that same tape again and again with our actions. And finally, we're going to get to see what the Bible says the solution is. So let's start off. First of all, this is going to work. First one, how do we lose God? So the first thing is the cynic. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 3. Let's go back to it. This is um, what the serpent says to the woman. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Did God really say that? What the snake's doing here is not doing a question. It's like, did he really say that? Hmm, I'm quite interested in knowing what he said today. No. This is not a question. It's not an argument. It is quite a sneer, in fact. Really? It's a bit like a teenager saying to another teenager, do your mum really not let you watch 18s? He's not saying, really, do do you want to tell me about it? No, he's mocking the teenager, isn't he? Really? Your mum doesn't let you do that? And then the teenager, a bit embarrassed, they're on the defensive, says, you know, she doesn't let me watch anything. It's like on the defensive straight away, isn't it? It's like, well, it's not my fault. It's just so controlling. She doesn't let me watch anything at all. And that's not true, is it? Obviously, the parent lets them watch whatever they like, but not 18s. Is that true? Eve says, and you must not touch it or you will die. Actually, that's not what God said, is it? She's elaborating. Already she's on the defensive. The snake has used a pit down straight away to get to Eve. He's dragged her into this, in, this discussion and a bit embarrassing, like, yeah, God is a bit unjust, isn't he? And we might experience this when people say to you, oh, you're a Christian. That's nice for you. <laughs> they don't mean that's nice for you, do they? They mean, that's sweet, a bit stupid. <laughs> Or, you really believe that Jesus is God? Great. Great. That's good. Okay. It's not an argument, is it? It's a sneer. It's a pit down. It's basically, actually, I'm so intellectually above you. If you don't get it, I can't even begin to explain it to you. 
So the first thing is don't lose God through cynicism or put-downs. Second one, let's look at the lie. Verse 4 and 5. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A snake, he doesn't go for the existence of God. He doesn't go for the power of God. He goes for the goodness of God. In other words, God doesn't want the best for you. He wants to control you. He wants to limit you. Because God knows this will happen and he doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want the best for you. And if we can't trust the goodness of God his love and his care and what's best for us, then our relationship with him is destroyed, whether we're ultra-religious or whether we don't care about God at all. Our relationship with him, if we don't know the goodness, is destroyed. I'm going to show you how. Firstly, the religious person, they try to fill all the rules every day. They must be as good as possible. And why? Because they're trying to persuade God. They're going to persuade him that he should be kind to them, that he should be good to them, that he should take care of them. The main objective of that is to be good enough for God. If I can do everything, I'll be good enough and God will be good to me. Those that push God away, nothing to do with him, if I obey God, he will want to control me and I will miss out on stuff that is good either of those, both of those are questioning the goodness, does God really want the best for me and if we're not going to lose God we need to be careful of this the lie that God is not good and he doesn't want the best for us third thing, the tree Verse 6, let's read it together. When the women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. The tree was good. That's important, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with this tree. It is a good tree. Everything in creation at this point is good. It is good. God has declared it good or very good. And remember, we don't want to get too tied up in literal. What was the fruit? Do you think it was a pomegranate? Do you think it was an apple? The important thing here is that it was good. The tree was good. And the tree represents something that is good, but God, as yet, in that time, in that place, has not said that they can have it. And is that because he doesn't want the best for them? No. But for that moment and that time, they are not to eat it. It is good. But why? So why doesn't God say, don't murder, don't steal, don't do this? Because if he did that, they would be understanding sin as breaking rules. And it can be that, can't it? Doing wrong things. But God chooses here to restrict something good. Sin is not primarily doing bad things, although it can be, but taking good things in our life 
and making, using them to make ourselves God. Adam and Eve, they sensed, didn't they, that was something more for them, that there could be more, that they could aspire to understand more. But they didn't go to God. They grasped after what they'd been told at that point they couldn't have. They didn't wait for God. They didn't wait for his timing. They desired something. They took it. You will be like God. And we do this all the time, don't we? On a very simple level, for example, in our careers, we know that work is good, God's ordained it, it's from him, it's, we're meant to work, we're meant to be doing things, we're meant to be active. But when we begin to overwork, when we start uh, driving ourselves into the ground, and we're working ridiculous hours and we're pushing on and on and we want, we want promotion and we want this and we want that, well, we're driving for something else there, aren't we? We're taking something that God has given us that is good And we're twisting it and using it for our own means. Maybe we want approval from others. Maybe we're seeking significance for our appointment, our title that we have. We're going about it in a way to build our own little mini kingdom where we become Lord. Or as last week, um, we heard about how sex was given as a gift And it's um, for that building of the most intimate relationships. And yet when it's used wrongly, when it's outside the context of marriage, it's people using it to gain something. It's not giving anymore, but it's trying to gain something. I want to gain affection. I want to gain happiness. I I want to gain fulfillment. When they, if you went to God for those things, you wouldn't need that. So we need to be careful that we don't reject God through cynicism, through a lie, or, through something, or by using something that's good to make ourselves Lord. So let's look at what happened. How does sin impact everything? Okay. First one, spiritual alienation. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard and they hid. God is walking, an expression of being in close fellowship, walking alongside them. But here, they hide, they feel cut off. It's no longer clear, they're in a fearless position, they feel ruined. If we look at encounters with God in the Bible, for example, when Isaiah meets the living God, he says, I am ruined He's completely before him. He knows he's got not a leg to stand on. He thinks he's going to die. He's completely undone. Because when he's before the holy God, he knows, I'm destroyed. You're so perfect. And this is how it was for Adam and Eve. They've gone from this intimate, close, fearless relationship of completely open honesty between them and God 
to absolute, I need to hide. I need to hide. I'm so ashamed. Psychological alienation. In verse, chapter 2, verse 25, we read, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, we read, The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They've gone from no shame, where they're perfectly at one and happy with themselves, to feeling shame. I've got a quote from David Atkinson. He's a commentator. He says, The sense of an ease with yourself at the heart of your being, not being able to be comfortable with yourself as you are, and therefore not being comfortable in the presence of another, that is shame. When we're not in that intimate relationship anymore, we're not walking at God where he totally accepts us and we have nothing to fear. When we don't have that constant flow of reassurance that we're made in his image, that we have worth, that we have value, we start to seek approval from others. Others like ourselves who are also shame-filled. It's like the blind leading the blind as we seek approval. We're asking others, am I okay? Am I right? Am I doing it? Am I looking good today? Am I okay? But they can't answer that. Because like themselves, like ourselves, they feel that shame too. So we hide. Shame, of course, it can be justly felt, can't it? If you know you've done something wrong, you should feel shame. But the shame we feel is much deeper. It's ingrained. It's deep inside us. And it points to a fact that things are no longer good in the garden. Next one, social alienation. Let's look at verse 11 and 13. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. And verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Not only at this point are they separating from God, they've separated from themselves, they now separate from each other. They withdraw, they turn on each other. You can't be transparent with God and you can't be transparent with yourself. You know way you can be transparent with others. If you don't know God's delight in you, if you're not secure you're going to be really selective about your relationships and how much you choose to reveal. You want to cover up from each other. And we know this, don't we, in our own relationships. If we, it's scary to reveal stuff about ourselves, the truth, to others because we feel so shameful inside. We want to ask, will they still accept me if I tell them this, if I show them this. And because of this, we struggle for genuine relationships. 
God says, have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to? And Adam says, at this point he could have gone for grace. He could have said, yes, I did. I'm sorry. But he doesn't. He doesn't go for grace. He says, instead, I'm going to justify myself. I'm going to excuse myself. I didn't mean to do it. I was tricked. I didn't understand. It's all her fault. If you hadn't put her here, it would be okay. He chooses instead to blame somebody else. And in blaming them, he tries to elevate himself in a way to try to get rid of shame. If I can make it all about her, then I don't need to feel the shame anymore. And we do this, don't we? When we compare ourselves with other people, when we think, at least I'm not like... What have we done? We've immediately tried to shift the shame to someone else. Or any time we do something and we think, but it wasn't really my fault because if that person hadn't done that, that wouldn't have happened. We've tried to shift the shame. We put others down. And we see this breakdown, don't we, in the image of God between man and woman. No longer is woman alongside man. She's not here, his companion, working together in the garden and the, um, in the task that God's given them. But now she's ruled over. Now she's put down. Now it's your fault. And we see this in the naming of her. He calls her Eve, meaning life. He names her something functional. This is the job she has to do. This is what she's going to do. She's going to have babies. This completely destroyed in this desperate new feeling of shame and guilt. There's blame shifting. No one wants to admit that they were wrong. And the wedge is driven deeper. And when we feel guilt and shame, there's only one place we can go. We know that, don't we, as believers? There's only one place we can go to remove that. And that is to go to God and say, I know I'm wrong. Please forgive me. No excuses, no blame shifting, nothing. Just standing before our God and saying, please forgive me. And that is very alien in the culture we're in. Final one, physical alienation. 17... To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Uh, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will receive. Remember, Adam and Eve were given that task of subduing the earth. But now they are not only in a wrong relationship with God themselves and each other, but also a wrong relationship with the earth. The earth seems to be fighting back. It's, a, it's, a, it's cross, you know, what on earth has gone on here? 
It's no longer a pleasure to work. It's painful. We read in Romans that the earth is groaning. It's like, oh, as it waits for the true Lord Jesus to return. When Jesus walked on the earth, we saw how he confidently subdued creation. You know, it makes you wonder, is this a picture of what it would have been like? In pain will come children, in pain will come food. What was good, what was pleasurable, what was perfect is now full of pain. And it's a lifelong struggle until they'll return to the dust they were made from. Their lives are limited and indeed as God said, they will die. So in this chapter, we see the result of it. We see how it's affected everything. But God, of course, has a plan. Even back here, let's look at verse 9. And I love this. Because he says, But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? Where are you? are you? And even here, right at the very start, the second almost it goes wrong, and the minute God knows, he enters the garden and he says, where are you? He pursues, he goes, the man runs, but God goes in and says, where are you? And even in God outlining what will now happen, to Adam and Eve and the earth, he adds in hope, hope. So how can it be put right? What does the Bible offer? Let's look at it. First off, verse 14 tells us, let's look at 15 actually. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. God's rule will be re-established. In these verses, we've got that plural reading of offspring. We've got the offspring of the snake, the offspring of the woman. We've got those who will choose to follow God and those that will choose to follow Satan. But he will crush your head. Derek Kidner says, It's odd that here it is the offspring of the woman when all genealogies are through the male. So why is it the seed of the woman? And of course we know. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. People will recognize that this is Jesus, the one spoken of. God stepping again into the mess. God pursuing again and asking, where are you? But this time, Satan will be fully defeated, fully crushed. He will do it. Let's look at the second hope. Take, eat. Words of death become words of life. Jesus, the second Adam, touches a tree too. But this time, it is response to his father's will. Not my will, but yours. True obedience. And we read in Philippians that Jesus didn't grasp. 
He didn't grasp for anything, but he humbled himself in complete obedience. And we know that he did this to death, even death on a tree. Once it was eat and you will die, and now it is eat and you will live. Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you will die. Unless we accept God's way of salvation, totally and solely through Jesus, our own attempts to make up for our mistakes will never be good enough. And the final one, the future restoration. They will see his face. In Revelation, we read about the new Eden. And we read that they will see his face. Remember, they're hiding from him, full of shame and guilt. They hide, cover themselves. But in the new Eden, in Revelation, the last book, those who have chosen Jesus, they will see his face. There, the tree of life will be readily available. No restrictions. This is the time to eat. No longer a curse. They see God's face. No shame. No need to hide. They are back in that transparent, secure relationship with God, themselves, and the world. And God still asks us today, where are you?